This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to Just Emergencies. Um, I'm Rebecca Richards and today I'm joined, unfortunately, by a bit of background noise, but more importantly by Professor Wendy Rogers. Um, She's in Edinburgh and she just gave a talk at the Mason Institute about AI in healthcare, which was incredibly fascinating, but also slightly terrifying, I'll be honest. Um, But for the sake of the podcast, she's here to talk about her work on vulnerability, where she's been a real trailblazer. So she's a professor at Macquarie University in Australia uh, within the School of Philosophy and the Department of Clinical Medicine. She has previously been a member of the Australian Health Ethics Committee and the Medical Board of South Australia. And she is a member of the Bioethics, Applied Ethics and Clinical Ethics Cluster at the Macquarie Research Centre for Agency, Value and Ethics. And she has quite literally written the book, or at the very least a very important book, um, or edited it, on vulnerability, and that is the New Essays in Ethics and Feminist Philosophy. And she's written several articles on the topic of vulnerability. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with me today. Um, Tell us, please, a little bit about your approach to vulnerability and your work around it and how you use the concept. Hello, Rebecca, and thank you. Um, My work on vulnerability has been very much a collaborative effort. So I've worked with um, Katrina McKenzie, who's also a professor of philosophy at Macquarie University, and Susan Dodds, who's now Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at La Trobe University. And the three of us worked together on developing a conceptual account of vulnerability. We felt it was an interesting concept that's used quite widely when you talk about a person being vulnerable it seems intuitively that we understand what that means we have an an image of someone who can't protect themselves or who's in in exceptional danger perhaps um, or is at a particular life stage like a, a newborn baby or perhaps a very frail person and so we have an idea of what vulnerability means but in the philosophical literature the ethics literature and even the bioethics literature it wasn't really pinned down very well as to what ethical duties were owed to people who were vulnerable um, and whether there was a way of trying to make it conceptually clearer. And this was because there were two almost opposing schools of thought about vulnerability. And one was that vulnerability was like an ontological condition, like a condition of being human, you know, no matter who you are, whether you're the most powerful person or the least powerful person, you will, you will bleed if you are cut, you will die if you are... Um, you know, bashed hard enough on the head. So everybody's vulnerable in some sense. But if you say everybody's vulnerable, then it's not a useful term for indicating that some moral response is required other than very general ones like, you know, not not harming other people. Um, So opposed to that school of thought or approach to vulnerability was a second approach which was particularly dominant in research ethics, and that was all about um, picking out certain groups of people who were vulnerable. And, and what that meant in research ethics was that if you were considered vulnerable, that you should have extra protections or people should take special care. And the groups that were picked out varied 
um, from guideline to guideline, but often included um, the elderly children, prisoners, pregnant women, um, people who were considered to lack power to perhaps make decisions for themselves because they're in relationships of authority, like patients and doctors or prisoners and teachers and students and so on. Um, but again, it was hard to see what was linking all of those. For some of them, it was a, um, a lack of cognitive capacity, people who couldn't make decisions for themselves because they were severely ill or had a cognitive impairment. But for others, like pregnant women, you know, clearly their cognitive capacity wasn't impaired, but they were considered vulnerable as well. And so it was, it was just a very messy field. So being philosophers, we thought, well, perhaps we can try and tidy it up. <laughs> and, and we didn't want to throw out the, the universal notion um, but at the same time, we recognise that although all people bleed, some people are much more likely to get cut than others. So we ended up with a, a taxonomy that has three parts. So the, the, first, the first two divisions are looking at vulnerability sources. So that's vulnerability that arises basically from, from being a human being and having the needs that all human beings share for, for food and shelter, for um, <clears throat> social interaction and so forth. And we call that um, inherent vulnerability. And in addition to vulnerability arising from the sort of inherent features of being a human being, we also described situational vulnerability, which is vulnerabilities that arise when from the context you're in. So they will, will vary from situation to situation and person to person. So a person who's already has poor health is more vulnerable if they get the influenza than a healthy person, for example. And we felt that it was useful to look at the different sources of vulnerability because that might help look at what duties are owed and who those duties accrue to. And within the category of situational vulnerability, we, we came up with a, um, a subdivision of situational vulnerability, which we called pathogenic vulnerability, which is not technically the correct term um, in terms of what pathogenic means in medical terms, but we... We used it at a conference and people just seemed to very attracted to that term. So the term stuck even though technically you might argue it's not correct. And we identified pathogenic vulnerabilities basically arising from unjust circumstances. And the unjust circumstances might be obvious and perhaps intentional like policies that keep unemployment levels at a certain um, a, certain, a certain number of people unemployed so no matter what you do there's always going to be some hundreds of thousands of people who can't find work um, so that's a kind of intentional vulnerability driven by whatever the government's policy is but you can also get people who are made worse off by policies and interventions and it's unintentional and we, we call that pathogenic vulnerability as well and examples of that might be a policy to try and support elderly people to stay in their own homes and so you employ a carer to come and visit them but that elderly person is then exposed to, the, to a carer in a way they wouldn't be if they were um, within their family or living in an, in, a, in an institution with more people looking around and they're vulnerable to abuse from that carer. Um, and we've seen, particularly in Australia, where we've had the last few years the most horrendous Royal Commission into institutional child abuse, where children were taken into care in institutions, allegedly for their protection and, so forth, and, and just suffered the most horrendous abuse. And we would call that a pathogenic vulnerability. It was a, something that was meant to help them, but instead it made them much worse off than if they'd, probably in some cases, if they'd even stayed living on the street. 
So you mentioned there obviously the situational and the pathogenic vulnerability and when I first read about these concepts um, I will be honest it took me a little while to wrap my head around them and because to me they seem to you know blur in in certain stages um, how can we tell them apart can we tell them apart yeah it, it can be it can be tricky we didn't intend them to be mutually exclusive but I think the the uh, aim was to look at ones that were more um, morally challenging or more demanding of, of, of response than others. So some some situational vulnerabilities don't seem to be unfair. Um, you might have a particular type of job and something very unforeseen happens to make that industry um, collapse and people lose their jobs. And so you were situationally vulnerable because that you had that you were in that particular position, but you're you're not it's not it hasn't been unfair, um, and so you you haven't been harmed in the way that you are if you're subject to a pathogenic vulnerability. And pathogenic vulnerabilities we kind of linked to to lack of autonomy, to lack of capacity to have any control over your destiny, and to be subject to forces that impeded you from exercising what autonomy you'd be capable of exercising in other circumstances. So we, we did try and link it quite closely to, to autonomy and the capacity for autonomy and the capacity to, um, you know, in one of Katrina McKenzie's papers, she's, she links it to, to justice and capabilities and the way that pathogenic vulnerability um, arises from unjust circumstances that particularly stop people from exercising their capabilities. So those were... Those were some of the distinctions, but we, I guess we were testing the idea out, and, and when, when we look back at that work, there isn't a, a, a large amount of, our work didn't, you know, describe, we describe pathogenic vulnerability, but we haven't got a very detailed treatment of it. And I guess we were surprised and also very pleased. People seemed to find the concept very appealing and useful, and we had contact from people from all sorts of fields, from Haishi from the from the earthquake response in Haishi through to sports medicine people all sorts of people saying you know this is a really great concept that we're using and then saying oh how should we what does it mean here kind of thing so it seemed like a we were onto something but I don't think the work's finished on fully fleshing out how the how the concept of pathogenic vulnerability in particular can be useful and what it can tell us about situations and what we ought to do so I don't think we've presented a you know, a completely finished um, concept there. I think it, there's still a lot more work that can be done with it. But I mean, is a philosopher's work ever really... Exactly. ...ever really exactly. finished? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned there the connection between vulnerability and justice, and you obviously also just mentioned that you'd had someone from Haiti from the earthquake. Mm. And obviously our project is about global health emergencies or disasters and justice and vulnerability. So you brought all of those three things really nicely together. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how vulnerability factors into global health emergencies like pandemics or disasters or humanitarian crises? Look, I think there's a few things going on with, with, with global health emergencies and pandemics and those sorts of things. So first of all, if we're talking about any of those, there's, there's, there's potential for physical harm. And, and in that sense, everyone's inherently vulnerable to, to catching whatever the disease is that's pandemic or to you know, being drowned if they're hit by a tsunami or whatever. So there's a level of shared vulnerability there that, that in ideal circumstances will ground some kind of solidarity result. So like we're all in this together, we're all equally vulnerable 
to, to, to the adverse consequences of whatever the global health emergency is. So that's, a, that's an, an aspirational view, I guess, and, and points perhaps to the, vol- the value of vulnerability as grounding solidarity and, and responses that do try and protect everybody. In any global health emergency, um, there are going to be people who are already living in more precarious circumstances, who have got less secure employment, who don't have insurance, who are going to be worse, made worse off by the same natural disaster. And I was thinking about flooding. We had floods in Queensland um, last year, and we've had we have floods quite regularly in, in Queensland. And it's a it's a disaster. People's houses get inundated, but. There's a huge outpouring of support from the community. People have um, insurance for their houses by and large. So although although it's a disaster, people are made worse off, but they're not brought to a level where they're they're precarious, really. There's though it's not terribly unjust. And if you think about flooding in, in countries where there's a lot of people are very poor, they don't own their houses, they don't have insurance, they just lose everything um, and have maybe have no means of livelihood because their shop's been washed away. It's the same natural disaster, it's a flood, but it has a much greater impact because they were already in situational vulnerability, had a high level of situational vulnerability. So although people can be affected by the same disaster, the impact of that will vary um, according to what I would call their, their situational vulnerability. And, and, it, and it tracks poverty and disadvantage by and large. Um, again, people who are... Um, disadvantaged after living in more crowded circumstances they're more liable to for pandemics to spread more easily than if you're living in your gated community up on the hill where nobody gets in or out and coughs on you so that that, there's that kind of impact there you mentioned that one of the early questions in bioethics was if there's one vulnerability do we have a responsibility to ameliorate it or to to help mitigate against it so what what would that mean in, in global health emergencies, which I guess is already such a big topic of who's supposed to help when and where and what responsibility do we owe? But do you think vulnerability adds an extra layer to, to global health emergency response? The way the way we were thinking about it was that using the vulnerability taxonomy might help to direct attention in orders of priority. And so we would say that people who are pathogenically vulnerable from whatever the disaster is should be prioritised in terms of responses. Um, And also the concept of pathogenic vulnerability serves as a kind of a checklist for people who are responding to make sure they're not making things worse. And of course you hear about um, responses do make to emergencies making things worse like when all the all the these you know aid teams fly in and reporters and they use up all the water and <laughs> they haven't brought enough resources for themselves so they actually become another burden on the community so with the uh, so in an emergency the concept of pathogenic vulnerability can serve its dual purpose to as a checklist for people coming in that they're not making things worse and directing attention to help those who have been made much worse off in unfair ways by the disaster compared to to, to the background level of being made worse off by whatever the disaster is, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned before that vulnerability is or was quite a contested topic in, in bioethics. I'm assuming that, as with a lot of philosophy there is potential that your taxonomy didn't necessarily go unchallenged or without criticism. So are there any potential criticisms that can be raised to your taxonomy or have been raised 
and how would you respond to those? Yeah, look, I think I think there have been criticisms and I think there are other approaches to vulnerability. I mean, I, I very much like Florencia Luna's approach of layers of vulnerability. And initially, Florencia was quite critical of the taxonomy. I think she saw it as a very hard and fast sort of either or, either it was this or it was that, and she, she didn't. She felt that vulnerability is much more messy than that. Um, but I've had more recent conversations with Florencia last year, and I think she's accepted that we weren't, we weren't intending for it to be a very hard taxonomy, that everything had to fit here or there, um, and that, in a way, you could think of the, the different parts of the taxonomy as different sources of vulnerability for the layers of vulnerability that she herself conceptualises. Um, so I think the two approaches aren't incompatible, and I think they both can offer something to, to, to be useful. In terms of it being messy, it is a messy taxonomy. Like I said, it's not, it's not either or, but I'm not, not sure that that matters. What we're trying to do is offer a conceptual tool for understanding what we mean by, by someone being vulnerable. And it's messy. It's not like saying someone has a particular blood pressure or you know, a particular feature that's very clearly defined. It is quite messy. Um, I know Samia Hurst has sort of argued that it doesn't really add anything, but this is in the context of research ethics that saying that someone is vulnerability, vulnerable just means that they've got an increased risk of an already identified harm. Um, I guess I'm not quite so sympathetic to that approach. I think vulnerability picks up something a bit bigger than just ticking off the particular harms that someone might be um, liable to or have an increased risk to. It's, it's a way of looking at the whole person in their context is the way that I think about it and so like I said at the beginning it's, it's quite an intuitive concept that we, we seem to find it useful in describing people's situations or what's happening or um, expressing a particular view about what a situation's like and so rather than eliminate it it seems to me more useful to try and understand or, or analyse it in ways that might be conceptually useful. As we said before, a philosopher's work is never done. <laughs> um, what kind of other avenues do you think, what other avenues of vulnerability should be explored or should be worked on, or what in that realm are you currently interested in and working on? I'm heavily involved in the um, Australian National Human Research Ethics Guidelines, and we're reviewing Section 4, which not in name, but in all but name, was about research with vulnerable populations, and this... Um, it was configured with this labelling approach where people get labelled as vulnerable and then protections are offered whether or not they're warranted and you can, you can get quite significant stereotyping and paternalism and we'd had feedback about that, that, that there was quite a bit of stereotyping and paternalism um, enabled by the guidelines. So we're trying to refigure, refigure them at the moment, literally. We're literally drafting at the moment and trying to think about vulnerability. We're not overtly using the taxonomy per se, but we are trying to look at vulnerability that arises in different life stages, which is basically inherent vulnerability, and vulnerability that arises in particular situations, and those might be situations of power inequalities or situations caused by ill health. Um, so we're trying to have that approach rather than saying you know, all pregnant women must have you know, this particular high level of research ethics review because 
pregnant women are vulnerable, whereas clearly depends what the research is. So we're trying to use the concept to get people to take a more nuanced look at the research rather than labelling whole populations as needing protections, whether or not they want the protections or whether or not the protections um, can be morally justified. Usually at this point, I would ask if people want to learn more about this, where should they turn? But in this case, (laughs) I can provide all the answers there, um, so to speak, because obviously there's your book to refer to, the one that you edited. There's numerous articles that you've written on the topic. So if anyone's interested, I would very strongly recommend checking those out. And we'll put links and titles to all of those in our show notes, which will accompany the episode. And of course, your interview is part of a vulnerability series that we're doing on the website. Um, So again, if people want to learn more about vulnerability, they can check out the other um, parts of the series. So thank you so much uh, for, for sitting down with me and talking vulnerability and clarifying this admittedly messy topic, as you said. Um, so thank you for giving us all the tool to work with. Thank you, Rebecca. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.